0: and others. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you were thinking of starting your own podcast, you want to download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's absolutely hysterical. So I just started with the opening and we weren't even live yet. So let's do that all over again. (laughs) That's too funny. All right. So welcome to episode number 143 of Shut Up and Grind. I know I usually don't Uh, stream on Thursdays, but tomorrow was a travel day for me and it worked out with my guest schedule rather than trying to reschedule since I'm booking it in February. Figured it just makes more sense to move a day ahead. So today we're going to be talking about overcoming obstacles. And uh, if you're new to the show and if you're watching on the replay or on the audio, welcome because you guys are valuable as well. But uh, the show is all about overcoming obstacles. It's about storytelling, like getting to the heart of our guest backstory. And then we take you through their journey into how they they became who they are today and what they're doing today. So again, if you're new, if you're joining me on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're on Facebook, hit that share button because we're going to give you guys lots and lots of golden nuggets and actionable motivational steps that you can apply today. So why keep that to yourself? So hit that share button for me. And if you're wondering who the hell is this guy and why should I listen to him, here's a couple of reasons why. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of, front of others like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. Starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like I wanna be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're gonna change your life and that's how you're gonna leave a legacy for your children and your family. You gotta know your worth. And that's me in a nutshell. So before I bring on my guests, we're going to have our teachable moment. And today's teachable moment is to stop doubting yourself. Okay, Stop doubting yourself. So as a gym owner, I see it all the time. As an obstacle racer, I see it all the time. People defeat themselves the second the obstacle or the roadblock arises, and they just defeat themselves. So I see it in the gym. I'll put a kettlebell down. Oh, I can't lift that. It's like, you didn't even attempt to lift it. And then they end up not only lifting it, they end up carrying it or they end up swinging it or doing whatever whatever it is the exercise calls for. But initially you look at the task and you just defeat yourself. And that doesn't motivate anyone, that doesn't inspire anyone. People say, oh, well, I don't wanna get hurt. Nobody wants to get hurt, but you can't grow without going through some type of pain, without going through some type of adversity. So when you step into that power, your whole world changes. And you guys know I say this on this show all the time, you know, great, like achieving great heights means that you have to go through great adversity. It's, it's just how it works. There's no other way around. If you want to become an elite obstacle racer, you have to go through hell to get there. If you want to arise to the top of your pro- your profession, you're going to have to do the things that the other people won't do to make yourself the obvious choice. Like That's just how life works. So when you come up to an obstacle, instead of defeating yourself, say, what do I have to do or who do I have to become to make that happen? And once you make that mental shift, everything is going to change for you. So Let's get to my guest. So this is going to be an amazing next hour, next 55 minutes, because this person survived cancer, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Like that's absolutely amazing. If that doesn't just show the will, you know, the strength of the human will, I mean, we can have, we can talk the whole show on just that, but wait, there's more. So after being thrown out of a Las Vegas hotel in a drunken haze, jeopardizing his career and relationships, this man had to make a change. So as I stated, he's a four-time cancer survivor, a type 1 diabetic, recovering alcoholic with four herniated discs, nerve damage, and sleep apnea, aka he's a walking, talking, breathing hot mess. But he he defied it all when he found obstacle course racing. So refusing to accept the circumstances, he finished numerous obstacle races, the Boston and Chicago Marathons, and the mama of them all, the 30-mile Spartan Ultra, culminating in 127 miles of endurance racing in six weeks. So now, he doesn't just want this to be a story about a drunk diabetic cancer patient who overcame adversity. He wants to focus on the less physical achievements and more on his mental and spiritual approach to overcoming life's challenges. So now, I usually don't read bios that long, but I think all of that stuff is relevant. So let's bring this man onto the show, Nick Klingensmith. Come on in.
1: Welcome, or... I'm happy to be here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Come on, let's get that awkwardness out out of the way. (laughs) We're just going to have a nice, fun conversation. And I left off that he is also the author of Through the Fire, which will be accompanying me on the plane tomorrow. Nice. (laughs) All right. So where are you joining us from?
1: I'm in Seminole, Florida. That's uh, just next to St. Petersburg.
0: Okay, St. Petersburg. Tampa Bay area. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my my, my brother lives out in uh, Sarasota. All right. So, again, if you see me looking down, it's because I have a notebook. So, like, as you're talking, I'm going to be uh, jotting notes down. All right. So are you originally from Florida?
1: No, I'm originally from Martha's Vineyard. Um, oh, and okay. in Massachusetts. Ah,
0: that's, what, that's why you knew so so much about Rhode Island.
1: Yep. Yeah, I uh, man. grew up there. I went to college out at UMass Amherst. Um, okay. Worked in Western Mass for about four years. I lived in Milford for about a year, and then I moved down to Florida in 2005.
0: Okay. And you you just fell in love love with it or or what?
1: Yeah, at the time, um, I hadn't run since high school. I was a competitive beach volleyball player, and I used to go to tournaments in Newport along the Cape and Connecticut, Um, but, you know, as you know very well, there's – seven or eight weeks of summer maybe in new england for week <laughs> yep. and god forbid it rains on a weekend next thing you know the thing yes. that i love to do more than anything i'm doing like five times a year mm-hmm. so i uh, i had the opportunity to leave there was nothing holding me back and and quite honestly i wanted to play b volleyball year round so that was the primary reason i moved to florida
0: Yes, love it. And and you are right cuz I play in leagues on Sunday. I play well, I didn't do softball for the fall league, but but I'm actually playing uh sand volleyball. And same thing it would be beautiful Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and then you see rain Sundays. Like seriously? Like I get two days a
1: week know. and this is what you do to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. So, I know I'm bummed to have to miss, miss this this week's game, but you know, Indiana's calling, so I got to do what I got to do. <laughs> all right so let's get to know you a little bit better so how would you how would you describe yourself Who who is nick
1: it's a it's a question that if i were asked 10 times a week i might have 10 different answers um mm-hmm. and at the end of it nick is a guy who is still trying to find his way in the world um there's been a lot uh, you know so it, there's been a lot of different nicks over the years and Sometimes you're responding, reacting to the environment or a certain phase of your life. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're trying to be in the driver's seat, but largely, and this is probably the, and I know we'll get into this a little bit, but I think the greatest takeaway from actually writing the book for myself is I was able to kind of look at things from a different perspective yes. and I'm not done yet. Um, the amount of learning that I did, and I mean learning, like things that I really hadn't faced previously. You know, and when I wrote the book the first time, the first draft, I wrote them, I wrote things the way that I remembered them the first time, the way that they made me feel. Mm -hmm. But as you revise and revise and you start to put things in a different perspective, you realize that you're just not done yet. So Mm -hmm. Nick is a guy who's constantly learning and constantly trying to improve.
0: Love it. That's solid. Your, Your first sentence, you're the exact same as my guest Sabrina said a couple of days ago, like the exact same things, so <laughs> yeah. trying to find my way in life, <laughs> you know, but isn't that, that's all of us, you know, that, that's all, of us. like, no one's, no one's done. And it, it doesn't matter what level you're, you're at financially or in your career. Like everyone's trying to just learn, grow and improve every single day, you know, so that's all of us. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. All right, so what was your childhood dreams? Like, what did you see yourself doing for a career?
1: Uh, starting second baseman for the Boston Red Sox. I love it. <laughs> 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 uh, this is actually funny, but since I was in first grade, I wanted to write a book. Okay. I wanted to be, wanted to be a writer. Um, yeah. That was, you know, there are pockets of time, like in high school, where definitely got caught up with actual high school work. Uh, a good portion of college you know I wasn't really doing a lot of pen to paper besides my assignments but overwhelming majority of my life at various times I've been involved just writing in something um yeah. and so actually writing a book and then publishing it was was an accomplishment of that dream and but to what we just said I'm not done yet
0: yeah yeah so what type types of things would like would you write about back then
1: so uh ironic as it is well, and a lot of people don't know this, but I was a private investigator for about 20 years. Okay. Um, predominantly on Martha's Vineyard. It was my father's business. He raised me as, you know, as his number two. There was a lot of things I learned, and we were involved in some <sighs> decent cases. Um, and what I want to do is I want to write fiction about a private investigator on Martha's Vineyard, using real cases okay. and then just dramatizing them for, well, to make it interesting. Yeah nobody's right. going to really care that much about, well, I sat in the car for 11 and a half hours and waited for somebody to walk outside. <laughs>
0: <laughs> True. <laughs> I love it.
1: I, I do like writing fiction. I like writing mystery. This book was the first time I took a crack at nonfiction. It was the first time I think I had something real to actually write about.
0: Nice. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. All right. So Take me through your your school your school years. Like, did you did you encounter any type of any type of adversity going through school?
1: So, I mean, everybody's got their own frame of reference and background. I'm gonna say family life was a little jagged growing up. Um, right. Parents both recovering addicts, divorced, and they were just trying to find out you know their way in the world too. Yeah, Um, given this was Martha's Vineyard where the square mileage of about 27 miles. So when I say I moved around a lot as a kid, it's not like I moved far, (laughs) (laughs) but I didn't have a lot of stability Um, and I learned to be independent, too independent at a really young age, something that maybe served me well for a long time. And at the same time, turned out to be maybe almost a little bit of a detriment later in life.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like any sort of a uh, after-school special or anything like that. Um, About, I think when I was about 10 years old, my father had gotten divorced um, from his second wife and then we actually moved in with my grandmother and she kind of became that stability um, for the next decade. Okay. I did well in school. A lot of it came naturally to me, at least through like junior high and so forth. once I got to high school, I was, I was just sort of one of the average kids, um, again, and then, and then college, I began to excel again. So school was something that kind of came naturally to me. It was really about, I wasn't athletic. Um, I was the short pudgy kid. I wasn't very good at anything. Um, (laughs) hand, eye coordination, not so much. And, uh, so I was involved in, in what I could, I guess, at a young age to kind of be social, but I felt like more like I was like this awkward kid who yeah. didn't really have a place.
0: Okay. All right. So you had mentioned that when you were 10, your father had gotten divorced from his second wife. You moved them with grandma and she kind of became the stability. Did you have a relationship with, with your biological mom?
1: Yeah, for a period of time. Um, by the time I was 23 years old, my mom and I no longer had a relationship. Um, yeah. But I don't want to say that she didn't try, but she was sick. Um, yeah. you know, she was she was trying, and, and she was trying to survive in her own way. Yeah. And uh, motherly responsibilities just weren't something that was able to be a priority in her life. And you know, when you're young, you're you expect to have that kind of motherly love. I mean, it's like you're born that way. Yeah. Um, and I think for a long period of time, I resented that I didn't get it and I was asking for it or pushing for it. But there comes a time, and I think I was in maybe my early teens where I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm on my own here. Um, and I, you know, we stood in touch for a while, but by the time I was about 23, maybe 24 years old, there was decisions she made that made me realize I just needed to protect myself and it just couldn't be part of her life anymore.
0: Okay. And so, like, my two older kids, I, I raised them. I mean, like, I, I was I was in a relationship with someone else, but, I mean, she, she wasn't their biological mom. And so, remember when my son graduated high school, he gives me a hug. You know, he's, he's crying, and he says, you know, thank thank you for always being there. He's like, thank you for never leaving me. He said, "But it would have been nice to just get a hug when I hurt myself every now and then." <laughs> <laughs> and like even my daughter says that. I, but like she'll be talking about stuff because like I'm I'm a problem solver. That's just how I'm wired. You know what I mean? It's it's just how I'm yeah. wired. So like I became a supervisor in my teens. and so it's just what I know. Like supervisors, it's your job to fix problems. So it just became part of who I am. It's like my daughter would come to me. She's talking about something. She's like, can you just hug me? I'm like, oh, yes, yes, come in. Hug. You know, but like that's that that's that mom love, you know, like I obviously raised them to the best of my ability. They're great kids. They're doing well, but like I can't duplicate that piece, you know, and, and I hate it when people say, oh, you have to play both, both roles. Like I, I can't play both roles. I'm not equipped to, to be a mom, you know, and then I think it's disrespectful to moms to say that. You know what I mean? So it's like I can just be the best dad I can be. So I I I just dive into that just because I want to see if that maybe played a role late later on in life when you went down that darker slope.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like there's an inherent lack of trust um, when you don't have that that connection when you don't have what should have been basic needs, I guess. And and yeah. you know, I get lack of better word, without having to feel like you're begging for love. Yeah. Um, and for sure, for a very long time, and I think I'm getting better about this now, but I mean, that definitely kept me from a certain closeness with other people, particularly women. Yeah. Um, you know, I kept them at arm's length. And, you know, some of my behaviors when I was drinking, as described in the book, is I never let anybody get close to me. You know, yeah. I always had that sort of core base of friends who, you know, the people that would take a bullet for you and – yeah. Bury a body. And then, you know, <laughs> I was with social. I enjoyed getting to know, you know, and meet new people. But as far as that sort of trust level and even in relationships, and then, you know, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but like I would complain if I was, say, in a relationship or, or starting to date a, date a girl. And if I didn't, I guess, trust her emotionally or, tr- you know, mm-hmm. I never gave myself completely to her. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she wasn't getting what she needed out of the relationship. So yeah. it's like it was doomed from the start.
0: Yeah, yeah, because like that's that can be devastating. Like I said, my two old, older kids—they say that all the time. Like when I leave the house, like say I'm just going. Like I live two two minutes away from from the nearest grocery store. So. Like, if i'm just going there i don't like say goodbye to all. <laughs> you know it's like i'm gonna go for, for you know five five minutes you know so, but like my my oldest daughter' she'll be like no 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 hugs 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 because so like she just has such a fear that i'm going to leave you know because like she even though like i said i i did very well with them you know, like we, we didn't really really struggle you know like i'm not that not that dad that can't handle it but she just has that inherent fear that i'm gonna leave her and I keep telling him, like it's 19 straight years I've been coming back. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going anywhere, you know. And and I hate that that she feels like that, you know. But I think a lot of it is because she doesn't really have the closure with the mother. Like in the last 15 years, I think she's seen them eight times. I want to say, like my oldest son wants nothing to do with her, but I, I think my daughter just has questions. Like it's almost like she she just she feels unwanted, and she wants to know why. You know so i with her i definitely try to try to like reassure her so she doesn't turn to other things you know so like so when did you first start turning into drinking
1: uh i'm gonna go ahead and just say when i was born um,
0: <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> so, well, um wasn't expecting that one <laughs>
1: well my my father's uh he's got god i i lose track all the time now he's got about 35 years of sobriety now um, and you know, my mom was, was always sick one way or another, and it was tough to tell if she was drinking or drugging, or if just the kind of bottomless pit she would get herself into, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I started drinking at a young age, but well, I, I say young, I mean, I think the first time I got drunk, I was like 14, maybe 13 or 14. Yeah. But drinking wasn't like a part of like a way of life back then, because at the same time, my dad was early in sobriety. So his way of trying to keep me sober was more authoritative than than he would have now. And of course, like, yeah, a lot of times that causes rebellious kids. But I mean, this was a small island. I lived in a small house. I didn't have the freedoms to go be rebellious and not get caught. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the guy at the liquor store was my hockey coach every cop on the island exactly. knew who I was like it was just... <laughs> so what I what I found, and so I didn't really drink a lot like I, in the summer times I, when I was a teenager I, I probably drank like once or twice and you know I partied hard when I did and I, I will say that my ability to handle booze came naturally um, same thing with high school I didn't really drink a lot Like, but when I was in college I definitely started to pick up The quantity and frequency of which I drank, but I kind of discovered at that then that I had a bit of a superpower. Um, (laughs) I could drink large quantities of alcohol compared to other people and be functional. Yeah. Um, You know what I didn't realize at the time though is that I was sort of stunting my emotional growth. Um, You know, it's one thing you know you're 20 you're 20 years old 21 you go out yeah a few drinks a few too many you're kind of feeling crummy the next day it's it's another if you start making all of your life decisions based on how you can drink
0: yes yes you
1: know like uh there's a uh, universal studios which is an hour and change down the road for me has their halloween horror nights every year and i love halloween i'm an absolute nerd for halloween yeah. and i lived in florida for over a decade before i went there because it I was like, how am I gonna get there? I don't wanna spend money for a hotel and blah blah blah. It never occurred to me, just don't drink.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: It never occurred to me that you don't have to go get drunk. Like, yeah, you can just go enjoy the place. And so, <laughs> you know, the it kind of sneaks up on you because again, like the problem develops so slow over time, at least that you don't really see it and you don't really see the behaviors that you're doing. And it's so easy to justify, self-justify everything and blame other people blame my mom blame my dad and you know at the end of it you're you're the only one calling the shots
0: yes yes i'm so glad you said that because when i help people with their storytelling like it's pretty much i do what we're doing here you know like i ask you questions you answer questions i write down things that you say and then we piece together the parts that you that you can work on you know and so many people miss that part when they're talking about what happened to them, it's like, okay, so what happened to you, how are you going to respond? It's like, that's, that's where the magic happens, you know? So it's like, you can, you can go down that rabbit hole and keep going and keep going and keep going at some point you got to get out of it. And only you are going to get yourself out of it. Like when people come to me for fitness and they're like, Oh, I need you to fix me. Like, "I, I can't fix you. You have to fix you. I said, I can give you the blueprint to fixing you. <laughs> I was like, but you have to fix you. Like, you have to drink enough water. You have to get enough steps. You have to get yourself here four days a week. You have to follow the meal plan. Like, that's all on you, you know? So once people realize that, then their lives can change.
1: Being a – my career largely has been sort of a sales leader, VP of sales, director of sales and in, in- – Various industries, largely, largely logistics. And yeah. I've also grown and matured a lot uh, over the past 15 years. Because, you know, the first couple of years you're a manager, you've seen Wolf of Wall Street too many times and <laughs> boiler you think there's a way to do things. But, yeah. you know, you, you learn how to work with people better and help them to find. I mean, that's why I like the only reason I still like leading people is because I, I have the ability to help them find a better way to be themselves. Yes. But. I have almost no tolerance for someone who doesn't take responsibility for themselves. Yeah. And there are some that just, they can excuse away anything and that's, you can't fix that. that, that they have to come to that Las Vegas moment where it's just you against you.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's so, it's so, so true. Like people think that I don't know what it's like to be, to be overweight. I mean, and people that listen to this show, <laughs> like they, they've heard me tell, tell the story. I'll just give the quick abridged version, but I, I was four, 45 pounds overweight before. You know, and it had it happened one time, one time, and I told myself this will never happen again, and it, and it hasn't, and and I've had seven surgeries, and even through the seven surgeries, I still I said I will I will never get over two hundred pounds, let alone I was two twenty eight. Now, for my height, people oh well that that's not bad, like, yeah, not by my, my standard, you know. It's like I was an all American athlete in track and field, like I had no business being two hundred twenty eight pounds, and it was because my my ex vanished. You know, she tried to take my infant son and vanish, but I I got wind of it and then I was able to intercept it, but she still left anyway. And I used that as an excuse, you know, to stop doing my usual routines. And people would say, oh, well, you know, that's noble. You got to take care of your kid. But I was dying inside, you know? So even though I, yes, I was giving him all of my attention, but I was losing myself in the process. And I'm like, what example am I going to be as he gets older and wants to start doing stuff and then now i'm overweight out of shape and can't keep up with him and so i made the decision i had the aha moment coming out of the shower caught my reflection and i was like wow and i was like this needs to change like it needs to change now and I put the steps in to change it and then i vowed to never go back and like that's the problem with too many people is they're okay just being okay. Like I'm not okay being okay. I want to be as bad as I can possibly be. Now I'm 47 now. I can't do the things I could do at 25, but I can still do a whole lot that other 47 year olds can't do. And I love that feeling. So like <laughs> that, that's what drives me. So when you had that Las Vegas moment, like what led to it? It's like why why were you drinking to that level? So
1: let me actually go back in the archives for just a little bit. Um, so that was 2014, um, 20, late 2012, I tore my hip, uh, playing volleyball and it was a stupid thing to do. It was like a nighttime in October, November. I hadn't warmed up. A buddy was like, Hey, come on, we get the court. And I, Mm -hmm. I tore my labrum and yeah, the surgery was brutal. The rehab was brutal. Um, And at that point I just packed it in. I mean, there was nothing left for me to do but drink. And you went, I was 230 pounds. I'm five foot, I stood next to you. You got a few inches on me. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, and it was my aha moment was I was out in Vegas. You'll find that I went to Vegas a lot. And um, I was, there was a picture of me and three of my buddies at the pool party. And one of my friends is like, well actually two of them are like six foot four, six foot five. They take. They keep in great shape. The other guy is a little bit shorter than me, and probably like one of the fittest dudes I know who doesn't race. And then there was me, and I had man boobs and this huge gut, and (laughs) like my face was just round. And I saw that picture, and which, by the way, I got home and I took a side view of me. I still have it on my laptop. I have it in my Fitness Pal app. Like I want, I need to see that as often as possible. Yes. But uh, and I lost about forty pounds, and I lost the forty pounds before I stopped drinking.
0: Okay.
1: Um, the alcohol, like that, just made me make a whole lot of really bad, selfish, stupid, self-destructive mm. decisions. So I lost, I lost a lot of that weight, and you know that that's the thing is if you blame one part of your life, right? So oh, if I'm just I'm just overweight. Well, great. Now I was 190 pounds drunk. So I was, and. I was never done seeking that validation and that might be part of like, maybe part of the mom thing, maybe just part of being selfish and and self-centered at the time. And so even though I was in a relationship for majority of the time, I was always seeking love and elsewhere. Um, And so as I got drunker and the world got darker around me, that always kind of seemed to be the play. Um, You know, where can I, Where can I go get myself into some trouble right now? And so it was was late. It was at the end of 2013 where I'd gone out for happy hour one night with some people from work, literally for a drink. And then I went home and I'm on the couch with my girlfriend at the time. And I got a text from my boss, who was a very good friend of of mine, saying how somebody was kind of talking trash like I was playing around with some girl at work or something, one that I wasn't. (laughs) And I got so mad at whoever was talking trash and I'm yelling at him. And he was just telling me as a heads up, like, Hey, people are saying crap about you. You know, again, I was putting it on him. I was putting it on the person who was talking never occurred to me. Maybe my behavior is causing this. And so I did make a decision that night. I made a decision. I was going to stop drinking because I was tired of other people's bullshit. (laughs) 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 So clearly that was, uh, I, I, and that was like December, and I wasn't even going to stop drinking then. I was going to stop drinking like a month and a half later at my buddy's after my buddy's bachelor party. So you can tell how serious I was taking it. Yeah. And uh, and I did. You know, we we toasted to some Johnny Walker Blue, and I was like, "All right, I'm going to stop Johnny drinking." Uh, I grew up around AA, and I my opinion of it at the time was just how I remembered my parents as kids, and so I didn't want to do that route. And yeah. so I spent about three months just kind of white knuckling my way through it. It, and I was jumping into every challenge I could if there was a happy hour, I went a birthday party I went. you know, I'm like, just just let me sniff it anything I could that just tempting fate, and uh, I was miserable. It was the most unhappy three months of my life, and so when I went out to Vegas, there was just i mean it was a work conference, and we all went out there the night before, so we could like before the conference started, so we could have some fun and not interfere with work, yeah, um so really it was just all the culmination of the fact that I wasn't dealing with the issue that I needed to is was alcohol. Wasn't the problem. It was the symptom. Um, I wasn't, I had no spirituality. I believed in God. I did not believe God was good. Uh, it was me against the world. And you know, there's a lot of people out there who can't like, and and again, this is my perspective. This is my life. So, yeah. but there are a lot of people who are ready to go to war with the world every day. And I just can't do that anymore. It's exhausting. The only way I could do that is if I was able to drink about it after. Um, it's even the name of the chapter of the book, One Last Drink Before the War, because I was like, all right, let's yeah. go. <laughs> well, I lost that war. And so, I mean, the night that night I remember we were at, uh, it was just me and a couple of guys. Uh, Jaw Rule was up on the uh, at the club okay. and I'm in a good mood, but I didn't want them to know I was drinking. So I just sat there unhappy for hours and I waited up. Until everybody else went to bed before I even started drinking. I started drinking at like two or three in the morning at the casino by myself, and I kept going. And then we're at a pool party the next day, and I'm just I'm pretending it's water, you know. I'm everyone I'm sure knew exactly what was happening, but in my mind I was being all secretive. And uh, you know, at that point, I mean, I wasn't. I had no off switch. The off switch had been broken, and I was going to go until I ended up in jail or dead. And I'm fortunate because it was a very public showing. Um, Nobody saw what happened that night, but everybody knew about it because I was trespassed from the property. I I was supposed to be a speaker the next day and I wasn't even there, yeah. Um, Miraculously, I kept my job. Miraculously, I kept my girlfriend. I mean, I hit what I call a false bottom and uh, I was really lucky that that happened in such a way that allowed me to realize I need help. I can't do this on my own. Whatever I think is right or wrong, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And I just need to go clean slate and, and get some help. And fortunately I didn't have to, you know, and I, I know there was a lot worse I could have gone to.
0: Yeah, and there's you know, the 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 beauty in sharing that story is that there's a lot of people who are there. They're at that point to where they're self-medicating, they're numbing the pain. Happens like my my dad fought in Vietnam and when when I was younger. He would sit in this rocking chair, and he'd ha- have a beer, or he or he'd have his uh, uh, what the hell did he drink? I don't know, but he had some something else, and he, he was just like he he was never like mean or abusive or anything. But we just knew when he's in his rocking chair, don't mess with him. And so you know, he we lost him in 2019, and towards the tail end there, we were trying to get benefits from the VA, and he had like so they give a stipend for PTSD. And so, but he had to speak about the things that he went through because he he never spoke about the war. There there was once, I think this was in like 2017 or 2016, we were in the pool at my parents' house and he opened up a little bit and all of us were just kind of looking at each other like, um, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> you know, so I was like, not going to share what it, what he said, but like, I wish I'd never heard it, any of it.
1: We could talk but, about that offline. I had a similar experience with my uncle. So,
0: oh, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. And so he, uh, you know, it just put it into perspective why why he drank so much when we were younger. You know, like trying to suppress those those memories, but it takes you know situations like like yours. To hit that, what do you call it, a false rock bottom? False bottom. Yeah, so it was like, but people have to hit whatever their bottom was. Like, for me, it was seeing that reflection in the mirror and was like, what the, like, you were an All-American athlete, dude. You know, It was like, you were this close to the Olympics. You were one knee injury away from the Olympics, and that is what you, that's what you did to yourself? I was like, no, I was like, that's not us. That's not what we're all about. So then I was a restaurant manager then. I wasn't even into fitness. So I was around food all day long. But still, like, I, I put that conviction in my heart that this will never happen again. And, you know, bringing on guests like you, sharing your, your story about becoming, we haven't even gotten to the cancer stuff yet, you know, but, show, but showing these stories is good to help other people. You know, so that person that's in that dark, sunken place can hear this episode they can read your book and give them hope of getting to the other side
1: that's ultimately why i published it um i started writing it for me um there's been a tale i mean there is a story there you know and i mean it's it, it my life has been changed in the last 3 years and again like so i got sober in 2014 i didn't start racing till the end of 2016 wrong one <laughs> and again <laughs> still trying to kind of figure out my life but It was when my my boss at the time had walked into my office and he was like hey uh i want to do the spartan race next month you should do it with me and i'm like no (laughs) i'm like (laughs) like running eight miles or so and doing up hell no and i i just i was like no way i don't want to be that uncomfortable and you know i went home that night though and i realized like there was something missing from my life and I was uncomfortable already. You know, I mean, I had everything going for me at that point. My my job was going well, relationship. Uh, I just started dating my current wife. Like, you know, things were, were going really well. And yet I just had this whole, and I had literally, and I, again, this is why writing the book was important. Yes. I didn't realize the timing at the time. I had just, just survived my fourth time with cancer. And I think I, I put it into a vacuum at the time. You know, like, okay, well, that's done. What's next? Which is a really dumb way to live. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's when I when I kind of started getting into it, I just I realized that all my excuses were just were nonsense. So um
0: Yep. Trailed off completely on that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let, well, let's, let's go back to the first time. So like what, what happened the first time? Like what type, how did you find out? What was your initial feeling?
1: So here's what's interesting. I was actually on a, a show during the lockdown. Um, and uh, one of the other guests um, also had a very invasive, you know, uh, story with cancer. And it's, it's funny to see the way people deal with things differently. And I'm different than most. I don't become the doctor. Um, That's not right, wrong or otherwise. That's just how I chose to deal with it. So it was 2005 um, and I started, I just moved into an apartment in Milford, You know those old New England buildings. It was winter and it was just really dry air. And I started waking up with like a dark substance on the bottom of my tongue Mm -hmm. every morning. And I had no idea what it was. And then I decided it was blood. So I started seeing a doctor and I kept seeing every doctor there was like, you know, is it from the stomach? Is it coming from this? Like, uh, and I finally saw uh, an ENT and he's feeling around. And it was the strangest feeling because I cancer is not something I had ever considered before. It's one of those things that if you don't have in your life you don't really think about that much like, yeah. and he paused, he put his fingers like right there and he paused for just a second. And for some reason, I swear to God, I knew. I just knew. I don't know why, but I knew. And so we had to do a biopsy of the neck, um, which was extraordinarily unpleasant. (laughs) And uh, I refer to it like that scene in Casino where Pesci takes the knife or the pen. Mm, Yeah. So it turns out it was a thyroid cancer or papillary carcinoma. Um, As far as cancers go, that's probably the one you want. It's okay. it's not very aggressive, and theoretically, you can take out the thyroid without having to have a tremendous amount of complications. Yeah. At the time, though, well, it was cancer, and that's all I knew. I was living alone. I was like 25. I didn't really have much money. It was winter. I mean, as it was, there weren't a lot of reasons to live. It was winter in New England. So. <laughs> and uh, this goes back to what I said earlier, too, about why it's so important to have written the book, not just publish them, but to write it is yeah. – the things you see differently, because I can admit now something I wasn't able to admit for the last better part of 20 years that I was scared. Yeah. I said I wasn't. I, I said I didn't really care if I live or died for a very long time, or I was, you know, not afraid of death. And I'm not sure I'm afraid of it right now, but I care. Yeah. <laughs> I care a <Yeah>. well. lot. <laughs> and that unknown part of it is definitely scary. So uh you know i had to go through just a a pretty invasive surgery they removed half my thyroid um theoretically they removed all of it but we'll get to that and uh you know and then you take some you basically have to take some like radioactive iodine it's it's not invasive you take a pill you go home and hide out for the world for three days because you're actually radioactive Um, and then i have to take pills to regulate my metabolism and to be honest that's actually the at this point in my life that's the challenging part of the cancer experience for me is that, you know, your metabolism and pretty much everything your endocrine system is regulated due to the thyroid. And well, 15 years later, I still don't have the meds. Right. So it's always like this or like that. And you're just kind of dealing with things that are unforeseen, I guess, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I want to just highlight something you just said too, about writing it down. Cause on yesterday's show, we were talking about emotional emotional intelligence, emotional fitness, and what the guest had mentioned about writing yourself a letter, you know, so for people that have, have trouble trying to verbalizing what they're going through, or if they're not ready to talk to someone yet to just get a notebook and just write themselves a letter, he's like, or even if it's someone that hurt you you can write a letter to them. He's like, you don't necessarily have to send it. He's like, it's just the act of getting it down on paper so you can read it, sort through it and accept it. So it kind of sounds like that's exactly what it did for you. But then you realize I can help other people with this as well. I'm
1: that was the point I was going to make when I trailed off is that, uh, <laughs> I had to be honest about who I was. Yes. I had to be extraordinarily naked about who I was. Um, I mean, I tried to give some people a heads up about things that are in that book. Um, And some people, well, whatever, they'll find out the hard way. (laughs) But (laughs) um, without being, I mean, the second chapter gets really live and says, I got thrown out of a Vegas hotel for trying to bang a hooker in a closet. I mean, like I had to say that part because otherwise I'm just a 40-year-old guy who's not very good at obstacles. (laughs) And if you without just getting down into the complete nitty-gritty of who I was and who I am now really doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, see, and that's that's the beauty of it. See, that's the beauty of it. so when I work with people and trying to help them tell tell their stories, they don't want to put in the dirty parts. But but it's like that's a part of you, like those things happen. And by just accepting it, it actually makes people connect with you even deeper. No what I mean. It's like and that's what people don't realize. So to get up here and just say a bunch of happy, happy-go-lucky stuff, you know, then you just become just another speaker. But to actually put yourself out there, to actually be vulnerable and talk about the ugly things that you have gone through, how you moved on from it and became the person you are today, that's the beauty of it. You know, so kudos to you for recognizing that and moving forward with it and putting yourself out there like that.
1: When I first started writing it, I wrote it for me. Uh, there was a lot to get down. Um, the races and stuff were, I keep decent journals. Um, and you talked about writing down the emotional part. I don't journal just like three reps of this and six intervals of that. Like, yeah. I actually write about how I how I felt during the run, what thoughts were in my head, what what's emotional going on in my life. Because there's a direct correlation, 100%, if I've got some negative stressors in my life to my performance in a workout. Um, and the exact opposite is true. When I'm just feeling good mentally, I work out well physically. And, you know, so I was just, the race part was, was kind of easy. And again, I just wrote it to write it at the time. The other things as I was going through it, when it finally became a book and I decided to like, all right, am I going to do anything with this? That's when I realized is that, yeah, there's a message in here and there are people who are struggling and they need to know there's a better way. Um, if there's somebody. I just hope that the person that can help somehow finds it and then if it gets them to find their way whether it be with alcohol, diabetes, cancer, just a bad day, whatever the thing is, whatever that struggle is that somebody has, somebody else has had that struggle and somebody else knows yes. the way.
0: Yes, exactly. And people tend to seek out other people who are currently struggling and that's not the way to go. You got to find out you got to find the one that that got through it. And speaking of obstacle racing, so you were just on the suck fest known as Killington.
1: I thought so we weren't going to we make me cry today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my, my bad. So I, I did it in 2017 and 2018. It gave me rhabdo and landed in the hospital twice. And now the one in 2017, I didn't really train for. I wasn't supposed to do it. I was a dumbass. I woke up that morning and I jumped in, right? So that one is, Killington, no
1: problem. Yeah, like <laughs> that
0: one was on me, you know, so that was my, the fifth time I had done it. So I was like, "Yeah, you know, I know this mountain, I'll be fine. But no, I, I wasn't fine. And so for people that don't know what rhabdo r- the- is, where your muscles are so overworked and it secretes a protein called myoglobin in, it, it, into the bloodstream and it can clog the kidneys. Hmm. And I only have one because my sister has the other one. So when you only have one, now it's, you're obviously at twice the risk now. Cause instead of having two of them filtering the blood, you only have one. And so i never knew that that was a thing and so for me to never ever want to admit defeat i trained hard and i came back for 2018 and it landed me in the hospital again <laughs> and so and when i tell you i trained hard even during the race i felt good like in 2017 towards the end like like i, I felt the full effects of it I was like something's not right here and so 2018 i i felt good but something told me, you know, just with the one kidney, I kind of had that in the back of my mind. I said, let me just go, go, go to the DER and get my levels checked just to be safe. And then I was in the hospital for four days. <laughs> so, wow. And so now that year, 2018, I was scheduled. Well, I had failed the, the New Jersey Ultra because uh, my knees just couldn't handle the mountain. Like, there's, there's nothing else I could have done to train for that. Just my, I had three knee surgeries. So my knees were just like, after the first lap, they were like, sit your ass down. So, but I still needed... I needed one because my goal was to do an ultra. So I signed up for the South Carolina one and I went to see my doctor and he was like pleading with me to not do it. He's like, 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 he was like teary eyed, you know, he's like, Robert, he's like, it's not worth it. He's like, you, you have, you have your children. He's like, you have your, your clients, you know, these people who, who depend on you, like they need you. And I was like, I love that, but I'm going to go find someone who did an ultra with one kidney. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I love that. So I went to uh, the Spartan Ultra page on Facebook and I just put a post out there. Has anyone done this ultra with one kidney? And I got six responses. So I linked up with the six, you know, vir- virtually and I, like, how did you hydrate yourself? How did you balance your electrolytes? What was your training regimen? And I found out how they did it. And then I went and I did it. And I did not land myself back in the hospital again. You know, so. Back to my my point is people find people who are having similar struggles, but that doesn't help you get through it. So you got to find the someone that moved on from the struggle, like someone right now that's struggling with alcoholism. They need you. They need this book, you know, because you got through it like you got to the other side. And that's how we learn and grow. Even in business, like you got to find someone that has the success that you want. You can't find someone on the same level. <laughs> it's like, how, how are you going to grow? Yeah, you can swap stories, but you're not going to grow.
1: So I, uh, it's funny you bring up business real quick. And, and as you bring up Killington too, uh, I had a good career. I spent about 15 years at one place down here. I was a VP of sales and I left in 2019 and I started a sales consulting company for a while. Okay. Um, and about a year into it, I brought on a pretty decent client who at the end of our project brought me on full time okay. and I worked there. Um, there were some issues with the company, so I ended up getting out and for a very short period of time, I jumped into something different and I hated it. And literally two days before Palmerton, six days before my sobriety date, I mean, it was like poisoning me. Mm. So I left no paycheck, no nothing, because my mental and spiritual health, above all, are more important. And the lessons that I have learned is that if I keep moving forward, I know I can do better. I believe I can do better. I believe there's something out there for me. Now, keep moving forward doesn't mean show up. It means you have to relentlessly move forward in the pursuit of your dreams. And so yeah. there's no roadmap for that, though.
0: No. You know.
1: So to your point, uh, what I did was I've been in, in one industry for 15 years. I've acquired a lot of really smart friends <laughs> who've been in the business a long time. And so I reached out to people who are now CEOs of $6 billion companies and like uh, publicly traded companies, like just people that are, have made it. And it's not like they woke up one day and were successful. So I, I called them up, and I, I was really humbled at the amount of people that took time to speak to me knowing that there was nothing going to be in return, like they were just giving me advice and help. And um, what was really great is some of those people knew me, then some of those know know me now, and you were able to get different kind of objective advice on here. Here's what I did when I was you. Here's what I did when I was you. I mean, not for nothing, I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit now, because as I uh, one of your shows a couple episodes back, um, you were talking about how you know, with road, no roadmap and wanting to be a speaker and wanting to put out content, you're like just gotta do it. Like just do it. Like figure it out. And the reason I'm kicking myself a little bit is I'm like, you know, I had seven, about eight weeks without work. I could have flipped a coin and tried to find a different path of life in that amount of time rather yeah. than going and look, you know, spending that time looking for a full time job. But the reason I bring that in reference with Killington is that. I, I put a lot on that race. It was sort of a, a metaphor for my life at the current standpoint. Like, you know, you can't help, but get a little bit of imposter syndrome when there's nothing more humbling than looking for work. <laughs> and uh, you know, when you are trying to kind of be at a high level, you, you start to doubt, like you brought up earlier today, self doubt, you know, am I good enough? Can I do this? And so unfortunately the Killington result didn't really leave me with the positive feeling that I wanted. But
0: <laughs> It's true. But See, the thing is, on my, on my Facebook story, just like an hour or so ago, I had posted, I was on somebody else's show, and sometimes, you know, when you're talking, you, you say some really, really good stuff, but you don't even realize it, and so the host of the other show posted a quote I said during the episode, which I, I didn't even realize I said it, nice. I said, said I would rather try and fail than not try. You know, because there's still there's still a lesson there, even though you didn't reach the finish line that you wanted to reach. There's still lessons there, you know, and yeah. there's still there's there's moments that you can take from that. Like, like when I talk about the Jersey Ultra, I don't look at it as a failure because I tried it. I saw where I had to draw the line. I saw where I had to tweak my training. I saw where I had to tweak my nutrition. And I knew that this is not going to happen on a mountain. You know, so like, I didn't take it as a failure. I just look look at that. All the lessons that I got, I still have the penny hanging up in my bedroom, you know, just to remind me, like that that one was out of your league, and that's okay. You know, it's I'm not saying Killington was out of your league. I'm just saying for me, you know, so for for like, I would never try the Killington one. My my knees would explode. But like, I just knew for me, it's like, all right. That's not it. So I have to find another way to get my buckle, you know, and and that's that's okay. It's like some people. Even that day, because my daughter and I ended up going over there just to tr- try to cheer people up, because so, so many of the ultras were so miserable, <laughs> and and I was letting people know because they were just so hard on themselves, and I was like, hey, listen, listen, like you're gonna live to fight another day, like it's all right. You know, so just take what you learn from this experience and go back and crush your training, and then whatever your next your next uh, challenge is, go go crush that one. Then if by chance, maybe something happened and you DNF that one, then crush the next one. (laughs) It's like, you know, you can't look backwards, you know? So just because it didn't happen then doesn't mean you're not going to have success on the next one. I
1: missed, uh, I missed cut off by about eight minutes. And at the time I had told myself there's nothing different I could have done. You know, I failed this one thing here, but uh, I'm not sure if you had seen uh, a post that I, I put up the other day, but. Number one, I had two good moments in that race. One is I made the rig with the ropes, which was awesome because I suck at that one. Uh, number two, though, with about 153, right, walking into the sandbag, me and everybody else around us knew our race was over. We yes. were not going to make cutoff. Yeah. There was no reason to do the sandbag. Yeah, and it just came out of my mouth, said to the guy next to me, "I'm like, well, you know what? I'd rather fail than quit." Yes. Time's on the clock, and I don't think I had to talk anybody into it. Everyone else seemed to have the same thing. the The day isn't over yet. Like yep. grab the sandbag two o'clock passed while we're on it. But that was a, that was the moment that I needed to know something from this race. And unfortunately I didn't get the answer I wanted, but I do know, I don't know how to quit. That, that's yes. still very apparent to me. I had nobody would have faulted me for being like, Oh, well, it's over. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. at least I so can leave that part on the field.
0: Yeah. So one of the guys, one of my, one of my clients did it. And, the friend of his, which coincidentally, I haven't seen this kid since he was like 12. <laughs> and so I walk into into uh, the room and he, he's like, you know, Rob, Chris, he's like, Rob, he's like, did you go to Cherokee? Like my high school? I was like, yeah. He's like Rob Foster? I was like, get out. And I was like, what's what's the chances that his roommate would have been some, someone that, that I knew? You know, but Right. anyway, so he was on his fourth go round. Like, and he failed it again. So he's failed four times, but he is determined to get it done. Oh, I and already set
1: like, my timer. I'm coming back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw the timer on, on your page. It's like, yeah, he's like, he's, he's determined. Like he, uh, he had the mentality that you had, but he saw it through. <laughs> he's like, he, he's like, he got to the sandbag and was like, F that. <laughs> you I, know, but, I don't blame him either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I was the same in New Jersey. It's like, I knew. I knew with the last downhill, I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to finish the second lap. And this was before we came out that long sandbag carry, because typically the sandbag carry in New Jersey is not that bad. But that year they moved it where it was longer and steeper. And so, and that's when the first year they moved from the 40 pound pancakes to the 70 pound bags now, or however much those bags weigh. So I was training with a 50 pounder. So, like, I wasn't ready for that. And then when I came up that hill, uh, the person I was running with, I was like, "Go make the cutoff." I said, "Don't worry about me." I was like, "I'm gonna finish the lap, but you go and make sure you finish." You know. So she takes off, and uh, and I'm like, baby stepping, like like I'm in hell right now, and I gotta stick out of the woods. And I was like, I, I so I just shifted my goal because I knew I wasn't gonna make the second lap. I'm like, just make cutoff, and like if you make cutoff, this is a success. And so, like, I'm trudging down, trudging down. You see the people d- down there. with. I made it with 30 seconds to spare. Nice. <laughs> so, like, I walked in. I was like, take the band. They're like, but, but, they're like, but you made it. I said, no, 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 just take it because I'm done. <laughs> 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 I was like, my race was to get here. <laughs> so.
1: If it weren't for – and I'm not blaming diabetes, but if I had maybe 10 extra minutes, like, I had to – I needed to not just get there. I had to switch out my fuel. Like I had nothing mm-hmm. left and my blood sugars were would not stay up the whole race. You know, at one fifteen, could I have gunned everything and somehow made it in? Yeah, but I don't think I had enough time to switch out my fuel and and get out. And without it, like at that point I would have just died. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, we don't we don't want that. Actually died. <laughs> <laughs> so what was this your, your first stab at an ultra or have you done others?
1: Uh, I did Dallas in 18, and Ohio in 19, and, I mean, those are just – they're completely different races, you know? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I've been to it on the Ohio course.
1: I mean, yeah, they're both suffer-fest. Yeah. But what I realized, too, is that this was the perfect race for me. Um, I want I want that race that most people don't finish. Yeah. I just want to be one of the ones who do. And so I I know what the challenge really has to be because I'm going to run the Chicago Marathon in three weeks. and. Nice. I'm gonna run, hopefully, a PR for me, which is not any number that anyone else in the world would be excited about. So, but there was something different about a race like Killington. Most people won't sign up for that ultra, and apparently, most people don't get through it. So, yeah,
0: I think, I think a, it was what 83 percent DNF rate. I think
1: I think that was an open and 73 percent in age group. Yeah,
0: yeah. So,
1: I think a lot of us who came up short can hold our heads up high. But I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that race to just get by.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But at least you've you've experienced it. You know know what you got to do. Hopefully, you know for next time, and I'll get out there and crush it.
1: Oh, I'm I left part of my soul out there, In about three hundred and sixty days, I'm taking it back.
0: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like I keep taking it back and and then giving it back again. <laughs> like in 20, 2014 was one of the worst ones ever there, and like a dumbass, I I did it. I did the beast saturday and sunday and when i tell you the tail end and i I can't even claim i did it because i'll i'll be a, up front i think i skipped the last six obstacles on that second day like i was just dead i was completely dead <laughs> my son my son just said he he won't even do the killington sprint <laughs> <laughs> he, he used to always say he's not doing any race that has the word kill in it <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord. But like what people don't understand is that these races they're the ultimate metaphor of life. I actually did a key, a keynote speech on this topic. And it was about like when you cross the fit, when you cross the start line nothing is going to stop you from crossing the finish line. You know, with in in a normal a normal beast, I know <laughs> right, ultra is right. a different animal. But but it's like you like you would have to be damn near on your deathbed to be taken off the course. And but yet in everyday life we hit that first wall and we quit. You know, like someone tries to start start a business or start something and you you get that first no. Well, I guess that that's a sign I'm not meant to do this. Like in, in these obstacles, you get beat up. Right. You get beat up. You got the different the different terrains. You're going through through water. Some places have that red clay kind of mud type of thing. Attica is half sand, you know, like all Ohio- cactus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. You got that out there in Dallas. And, you know, there's so many different elements like uh, weather is, is an issue. When I did when I did the Ohio Beast in 20, I believe it was 15. There was all types of weather. It was snowing. It was hailing. It was windy. Wow. It, it rained. Oh, it was awful. It was absolute, probably probably my most unpleasant race besides the Jersey Super in the Nor'easter. You know, but it's like there's so many different elements, but you don't quit. You know, like life throws everything at you, but you keep going. You're rolling ankle. You keep going. You see people crawling up, up and down the mountain. And it's like, you know, do, do you want, want a medic? No, because if you get a medic, they're going to pull me off the course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just imagine taking just an ounce of that into your everyday life. You know, the, oh, that's right. I forgot my son was there too. He's in oh, Ohio, definitely. Son, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, but but like just to take a little bit of that into everyday life. You know, I mean, like so many people would would struggle so much less.
1: Here's my big takeaway from this race that applies to my life and and everyone else, because again, I missed it by minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So if I get one more grab on twister i nail it if my diabetes isn't screwed up if i hit this one obstacle if i knew how close i was at 115 right that's the part that sucks though because if i could have gone harder why didn't i
0: yeah
1: and that's the part that i gotta carry with me right now given in a big race like that yeah you have to understand that it's a long day you know and it's a long life so it's not but at the same time if I could have, I should have. Yeah. And hopefully that's something I, that's, that's hopefully a lesson I don't forget anytime soon.
0: Yeah. It's like being a track and field athlete. I mean, with any sport really, but like in track, even though, yeah, you do track team points, but you know, it's an individual sport and it's like, you give that everything. Cause in track, it can be come down to a hundredth of a second. You know what I mean? That like, that's that. <laughs> and it could be your start. It could be your stride length. It could be your posture. Like, there's so many little details. Mm-hmm. And, like, I coach the high jump because a lot of people don't know how to coach it. But there's so many little details that can change the trajectory of, of your jump. And it's, like, after – it's, like, oh, wow, if I just snapped my foot a second sooner, I would have been the New England champion. <laughs> you know, just just a little – because my foot grazed the bar – it 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 uh, bobbled and it fell. Had I made it on that first jump, I, I ended up getting six sixth place. I would have I would have been first place if I nailed it on that first jump. And it's like that was such a hard pill pill to swallow. But then but as a coach now, it just makes me more keen when I'm working with the athletes. Like something like that can be the difference of D D one recruiting and just barely making a medal. Yep, so all right, look at this. I, man, these hours fly by, absolutely fly by. All right, so what would you say is the biggest takeaway out of your book?
1: The perspective of my own life, uh, as far and and the reason I say that, even though it, the question might be geared for others, I a lot of people hit me up when I put this out. Um, obviously, I'm pretty active in social media and with Spartan 4.0 and some other groups as well. And um, you know, what was interesting is that a number of people dealing with cancer or some people dealing with diabetes or, or some people dealing with alcoholism. But here's the thing that was interesting to me that I hadn't planned on. The number of people who reached out to me who said, I need to do this too. And mm. it's it's true. Um, all the lessons, all the things that I talk about now are lessons that I learned from telling my own story. Yeah. You know, at the time, you're just going through it. You're doing what you can to survive, and some things as as you go through the book, you might notice. I, I don't know if people will see this or not, but I did it on purpose. If they did, the attitudes change a little bit. You know, I even talk about the first time I got cancer, and I said, "Oh man, I have to live with this." Mm. The second time I got cancer was, "I get to live with this." You know, now it's, "Oh, cancer's got to live with me." Yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah, you begin to appreciate things a little more. You begin to become less of a victim, um, you know, and also like, again, you you look at the personal responsibility and some of the perspective, you know, like we talked about my relationship with my mom for a moment and I was never angry with her, but at the same time, I realized maybe I could have taken that relationship different. Maybe, you know, there's just ways to evolve. And if you don't take a hard look at yourself, you can't get, well, you can't get out of the fire. I mean, that's, if you're waiting for somebody else to rescue you, why would the person who put you in it take you out?
0: I hope my son is still listening because, well, cause I told you he's got that strained relationship with, with his mom and I try to help to help him understand that forgiveness is for you. Yeah. You know, like, and- like, that doesn't mean you're going to forget what she did, but you, you have to, you have to forgive in your heart so you can move on and not carry that weight the rest of your life.
1: My mom passed away in 2015 and thankfully I was sober. Yeah. Um, and from what I hear, so was she, but, I realize, and I don't know if I would have done anything different. And I don't like to to ruminate on on possible regrets very much, you know. But yeah. at the same time, maybe I never had the mom, could have had the mom I wanted. But it's like she still could have had a son. And yes, that's, just because people don't live up to our expectations is that their fault. Yeah. So, you know, where's the good? It's a risk versus reward thing, and uh when I got married the first time I wasn't going to invite her to my wedding and my grandfather suggested that I did. He wasn't very pressuring. And he he just told me, which one am I going to regret more? Mm. And I'm like, okay. So I invited her. I was glad she was there. And it's one of the few decent memories I have of her. So um, biggest takeaway from the book is number one, your excuses are bullshit, whatever we think they are 100%. Stop saying them. You're wasting our time. Um, Mm. We have to accept the things that, are there, you know, you mentioned about the knee and the kidney, you have to accept that. I have to accept I'm a diabetic. I can't pretend yep. I'm not. Yep. That doesn't mean I can't do things. It just means I have to take a different approach. I have to do it differently. So the biggest takeaway is is number one, there is nobody, well, the biggest takeaway is nobody's gonna take you out of the fire but yourself. And there's nothing that should prevent us from going after whatever it is that we want. And again, I'd rather fail than quit.
0: Exactly, and I love the title through the fire. I love that kind that. of
1: works out perfect in our world, right?
0: What the- <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to share your story with us. Academy. And uh for me. And, yeah, and, um, you know, maybe we'll check in again down, down the line, see what you're up to. Sounds good. All right. And uh, if you want to get on some other shows, I have a bunch of podcast friends I can connect you with. Cool. That'd be great. No. So get out there, spread the word, you know, pimp out your book a little and uh, see what happens.
1: Have a great, uh, have a great race this weekend.
0: Oh, we'll do. We'll do. I'm sure we'll, we'll, uh, you know, have photos and all that good stuff. Now that I finally get to meet people. I know. Right. (laughs) It's like right when I joined, when I, when I joined 4-0, I ended up having knee surgery. So I missed a lot of races and then 2020 happened. <laughs> it's like it's like I'm in the group, and it's like I really don't know anyone. <laughs> so, so it was nice meeting a few. few I was few glad people I got to meet you later. in person. Yep, got to meet you. So this is good. Going to meet meet a few more this weekend. So it's exciting, exciting. Uh, oh, Tony was Tony Ann was listening. Said great interview. Thank you, Tony Ann. Thanks, Tony Ann. All right, man. Have yourself a great day. And uh, don't you. don't sign out yet, though. Please. Okay. All right. All righty. So if you're tuning in late and you missed some of it, make sure, sure you go back. You can watch it anywhere that you get your podcast. So it'll be on the main one. Is, I use Anchor, but you can get it anywhere. iHeartRadio, uh, Amazon, uh, Apple, whatever, you, uh, wherever you get them. So I will be back. I'm not going to be back tomorrow because we did it today instead because I'm traveling tomorrow. So I'll be back on Tuesday. With another episode, with another great guest, with another inspiring story. So thank you very much for tuning in and have a great day. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion.